never looked at photos or videos to simply reminisce about the past. The people of Israel did not have photos or videos, but they did have stories and celebrations. Most of you will remember this from our time when we walked through the book of Leviticus and we came upon that glorious chapter, chapter 23, wherein we learned that God had actually transformed the calendar of the people of Israel into a classroom. Their festivals and their special times of year were aimed at teaching them about their own identity and God's character. When we come to 1 Kings in chapter 8 this morning, this is relevant because uh, the dedication of the temple actually takes place during one of my favorite feasts. It's the last feast that's mentioned in Leviticus 23, and it's called the Feast of Booths, of Shelters, of Tabernacles. Lots of names. But we'll refer to it as the Feast of Tabernacles. And what would happen at this particular feast uh, every year is the people would come together. They would all, it was a pilgrimage feast, so all the people would come to Jerusalem, and they would build tents and live in those tents for a week and rejoice before the Lord. One of the commands that God gives to the people is to rejoice before him seven days. It seems like it would have been a whole lot of fun. And it's important for us to to recognize that this feast is the context into which we are stepping when we come to chapter 8. The temple is being dedicated. This is the zenith, the high point, the climax, the crescendo, the apex of the old covenant matters. It's all downhill from here. There's a great celebration. And what we learn in this chapter, we learn a bunch of things, but one of the main things we learn is that God reveals himself through relationship with his people. God makes himself known through his people. And that's our main idea this morning. And I want to exhort you in light of that, and this is just lifted straight out of verse 61, to let your heart be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in His statutes and keeping His commandments. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we come before you, and what a sacred privilege it is to gather together in your name, to listen to the preaching of your word, to sing songs of your glory and your grace. Lord, we don't know how many Sundays we will be given to celebrate such things, and we thank you for this one. Some of us are still rubbing the sleep from our eyes. We pray that despite our fatigue, that we would not be hindered from putting our attention on you. God, incline our hearts to you this morning. Help us to worship you with the whole of our being. You are worthy. Meet us now in this time as we come before you hungry and thirsty for your righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we are in 1 Kings 8, and Solomon has gathered all the leaders of Israel, all of the important people. They're all assembled at this Feast of Tabernacles. The temple is going to be dedicated, and and we see the beginnings of this festival starting in verse 5. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the house, the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. And so they are moving the ark, the symbol of God's presence, his throne, if you will, into the Holy of Holies. They're bringing it into God's house. It's moving day for God, if you will. And one of the the fun things to point out here is they've moved the ark before. Remember, if we look back to uh, 2 Samuel, they're trying to move the ark, and they go, we're going to move it like the Philistines moved it. And they put it on a a cart, and the cart is going along, and it hits a pothole or something, and, and Poor Uzzah, right? He, he reaches out thinking that his hand is holier than the ground upon which the ark would have fallen. And so he tries to steady the ark and he is struck dead. It kills both him and the festivities. The ark is returned elsewhere. It's not brought into the city. This time, as the time after Uzzah, it is moved with poles properly by the people. There is a seriousness to the festivities. You'll notice that they are sacrificing sheep and oxen to the extent that they cannot be counted or numbered. Why so many sacrifices? These are acts of worship, and all of the sacrifices have beneath them, they all accent different things, emphasize different things, but one common thread through all of them that they emphasize is the need for atonement in order to have relationship with God. God is holy, and his people are unholy. The only way that his people can have relationship with him, can can be in his presence, is through the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice offered by a mediator. This, of course, points us to Christ our Lord, who is our mediator and himself the sacrifice. He is the final offering to God. It is his blood that pays for our sins and allows us, his people, to be in his presence. The people are sacrificing before a holy God, and they're coming into his presence. The ark is going to be placed underneath the wings of the cherubim in that holy place. And notice what's in the ark. Look at verse 9. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. I don't know what happened to Aaron's staff or the jar of manna, but what we do learn is that there is one thing inside of this chest. 
Ten Commandments. The Word of God. And this tells us something about the centrality of the Word of God to the worship of the people of God. In fact, God's Word throughout Scripture is the ultimate expression of His presence. You look back at chapter 6 and verse 12 when God is promising to Solomon that he will be with the people if Solomon is faithful to walk in the ways he's commanded him. He says, I will establish my word with you. And then in a parallel phrase, he says, and I will dwell among the children of Israel. Where God is present, God's word is. One commentator notes, at the heart of the temple is a simple reminder that God is a speaking God. Worship is word-centered, driven by, shaped by, and defined by what God says. Question for you, Christian, church member, is will you listen to God's word? Church, is God's word the governing authority in your life? Or are you the governing authority in your life? Is God's word your authority? God's word dictates worship and is an expression of his presence among the people. It is at the very heart of the life of the people of God. They move the ark filled with God's word into the holy place, that throne room. And then notice what happens. Look at verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. We have echoes of Exodus and of Sinai here. Remember when the people came out of Egypt and stood at the foot of the mountain and God spoke to them, it was from thick darkness, a cloud of it. The mountain was scarred by flashes of lightning. Smoke rose up from it. There was the sound of thunder and of trumpets, and the people stood at its base trembling as they heard the voice of God ring out among them. It was a terrifying scene, such that they called out to Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore. You speak to him. You talk to him, and then you you talk to us. We need a mediator. His presence is going to consume us. God was in the mountain and in the cloud at Sinai, in the thick darkness. And of course, we think back to the tabernacle, that is this holy worship space that God is moving out of as he moves into the temple, his presence. Remember what happened there at the end of Exodus. They're finished building the tabernacle, and the cloud of glory fills the whole place, and Moses can't even go in. The cloud is signaling us to God's presence among his people. We see it here, and then we see it when Jesus is transfigured. Remember, he 
and the disciples are enveloped in a cloud of glory, and the voice of the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. You see, this cloud and this ark with its words of stones inside teach us about God. They teach us that God is both mysterious and clear. He's unknowable, and yet he can, he's communicated himself to us. Think about it. The cloud would have signaled the people to God's presence, but God himself would still remain invisible. Known only by his word. Here's the takeaway, I think. You, friends, can know God. We can know God not because we have physically seen Him or touched Him with our hands, but we can know Him because He's spoken to us in His Word. God has called us into relationship with Himself by speaking to us through His Holy Word. God makes Himself known to His people through His Word, and then He makes Himself known through His presence with His people. God is present among His people. He's present there, and this presence of God prompts Solomon to pray. And the chapter is expertly structured, so it opens up with the ark coming in, there's celebration and sacrifice. It ends with celebration and sacrifice. On the other side of that celebration and sacrifice, there is blessing number one, blessing number two. And in between those blessings and in between the sacrifices, there is this prayer of Solomon. This is really, the author brings to our attention the significance of Solomon's prayer by organizing his material this way. It's called a chiasm. I just like to call it a sandwich, right? It's just like a reflective sandwich. There's these two things are the same on this side, and these two things, and then in the middle is something different and defining. We do this if you have a sandwich. We've been through this. You guys are like, this again? Yeah, right. You have ham in the middle of a sandwich. It's a ham sandwich. Uh, you have uh, cucumber in the middle. It's a cucumber sandwich, I guess. Uh, hamburger, it's a hamburger. That's the defining feature. And so this sandwich, this literary sandwich, is teaching us to put our attention on not necessarily the, the temple itself, but what the temple represents. Not necessarily on the sacrifices themselves, but the prayer that Solomon is offering to God. But before we get to the prayer, we do need to pay some attention and heed the blessings. And Solomon's blessing starts, it starts in verse 14, but we're just going to look at a couple of verses. First, verse 15, he says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth. Verse 20, now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. In particular, Solomon is recalling to his own mind and bringing to the attention of the people that God has kept his word. 
Indeed, David's son Solomon has ascended to the throne. And indeed, the temple has been fulfilled. All according to the word of God. Now if we jump over to that second blessing, we would read in verse 56 this. Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all His good promise. Not one word of God has failed to yield the promised results. God's word does not fail. It does not falter. It does not return void. If God said it, you can take it to the bank. His word is good. Or as the psalmist says, It is more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter than honey. God's Word accomplishes what it says. God does with His hand what He says with His mouth. It's this theme we've seen early on in Kings once more. That that melody line. God keeps His promises. And the fact that God is a promise-keeping God is what causes His people to pray and to trust Him. The foundation for Solomon's prayer is the fact that God keeps His promises. God is faithful to His people. That's how He makes Himself known. One of the ways is through His faithfulness to His people. He's kept promise after promise. A good practice for all of us, maybe when you go home this evening, is to itemize all the ways that God has been faithful to His Word and how He has been faithful to you. This will, will swell your heart with gratitude and lure you to prayer with thanksgiving. Solomon is praying in light of the promises of God, and he will be praying the promises of God back to him. I love in verse 26, he says, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. In the whole section, if I can paraphrase, he's just saying, keep it up, God. Keep keeping your promises. And then I love this this sort of disjointed in verse 27 there's an adversative we read this but will God indeed dwell on the earth behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you how much less this house that I have built you have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea O Lord my God listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. 
I love this because Solomon has just put all this time and effort and wealth into building the temple, and he's praying towards the temple. He's praying to God that, that he would hear and act, that he would hear and forgive. And then he turns around and, and says, but what am I talking about, God? You and I both know that you can't be restricted to the temple. That you're bigger than that. Heaven itself cannot contain you. You are boundless. Heaven cannot hold you. You cannot be tamed. God is infinite, transcendent, incomprehensible. As we said earlier, unknowable. And yet, as Solomon recognizes, this God who is so far beyond us speaks to his people, makes himself present with his people, is faithful to his people, and allows his people to speak to him in prayer. See, our God has a knack for doing the impossible. He is transcendent, and he is eminent. He is incomprehensible and intelligible. He's unknowable, and yet he has made himself known. Our God shrouds himself in a cloud of glory and speaks to his people through words written on stone. He is the great and almighty God. So, so high above us, and yet, and yet we have access to him. He humbles himself enough to listen to the prayers of his people. God listens to our worrying, our rambling. What, I mean, what humility is that? I mean, think about it. The creator of all things and of you actually listens to you. Love listens. This is a godly thing to listen to others. We think of how grand and glorious God is. And we think of the price it cost to buy us access into his presence. I don't know how we can't be spurred on to prayer. Our access only comes by the blood of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. This is what enables God to hear the prayers of his people. We get to, to speak to God not as some ruler who is so distant from us, but as his children. When we are adopted in Christ, we no longer have to fear God as judge. Rather, we relate to him as a, as a boy relates to his dad. We have that kind of access. 
love, this juxtaposition of God's greatness and his grandeur, and yet he has chosen to manifest his presence in a real and special way in the temple. And Solomon, even though he's built this temple and he's praying to God, is recognizing this temple can't hold you. You're infinite. But yet he's intimate. Love in verse 30. Listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place, temple, and then look what he says. And listen, not in the temple, not in the throne room, listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Forgive. Those are two main requests. There are seven petitions in Solomon's prayer. And his main requests, and most of them, it's, it's hear and forgive. And two of them, five and six, it's hear and act. Hear and do this. The reason there's such an emphasis on forgiveness is because though God is present with his people and is faithful to his people over and over again, God's people sin. We see this. I'll just give you two examples. Verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they, that's his people, have sinned against you. God judges sin. Israel, when they turn from God and they commit sins, will experience the curses laid out in the covenant. Solomon here is, is praying through the Pentateuch, if you will. He's laying out these covenant curses. He's saying, it's more than likely the people are going to sin in these ways you talked about. <laughs> so, so when your judgment rightfully falls on them and they experience defeat before their enemies, when they experience drought and pestilence and locusts and disease, We're going to move on to the forgiveness part, but we, do, we need to focus on the sin part here. God judges sin. And God's judgment of sin throughout history is meant to serve as a warning to everyone so that we, we might repent and turn ourselves to God. From, from Noah's flood to the judgment at the Tower of Babel, to the judgment at the exile, to the cross, to diseases and death itself. All of these tragedies, all of these judgments of God are meant to turn our hearts to God. Be as if you were driving down the highway and you tried to uh, exit on an entrance ramp. Right? Usually there are signs there. I don't know from experience. I've been told uh, that there are blinking lights sometimes, signs that say, do not enter, don't go this way, turn around. That is the purpose of God's judgment in history. We see it. 
See this warning about the wrath that is to come in eternity to all those who refuse to acknowledge God's kingship. We see it clearly at the cross. When Jesus dies, he dies for the sins of his people. He dies for all who will trust in him. He pours out his blood, is crowned with thorns, and is nailed there to suffocate to death so that we might have a vivid picture of what sin brings. The wages of sin is death, and death is merely a picture, a preview of what an eternity underneath the wrath of God is like. And when we look at death, and when we look at Jesus dying on the cross in particular, we should see the warning and we should go, I need to turn from my sin. Because its end is death. Thankfully, the cross also testifies at the same time, not only to God's justice, but to, to His mercy. It is there at the cross we are forgiven. That redemption accomplished. But to stay on point here, God judges sin. Christian, is there sin in your life that you are comfortable with? You need to repent. Your sins will find you out. If you are truly in Christ, you cannot be a bedfellow with sin. Here some of us make friends with sin and justify it in such a way as if God's okay with my sin because X, Y, Z. He's not. Turn from your sin. Non-Christian, you can know the transcendent almighty God who made you. If you will trust in Christ. Turn from the way of wickedness to the way of life. Heed the warning. God is known through His people, and though they sin, when they repent, He forgives. He reveals His mercy and His loving kindness. Do notice there is a condition. Forgiveness is free, but it doesn't happen automatically. Forgiveness was purchased by the blood of Jesus, but it is not reckoned to anyone who does not repent. If you do not repent, you are not forgiven. There's going to be no one in heaven who did not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and turn from their sins. Forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, requires repentance. See it over and over again, Solomon says, if, if, if. But I want to bring one to your attention, verse 46. It says, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, 
Yet, if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Support them and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive that they may have compassion on them because they are your people and your heritage or possession which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call upon you. For you separated them out from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, your possession, as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord our God. The foundation for Solomon's prayers is the promise of God. And his for the, when he asks for forgiveness for the people, when they repent, if they repent, he asks for it not on the basis of the people's repentance, but on the basis of God's grace. You see that in verses 51 through 53. Solomon basically says, you should hear the prayers of your people when they are repenting. You should accept their repentance because they are your people. Because you chose them to be yours. Therefore, if they're really yours, and they turn their hearts to you, forgive. Forgive. But what is, what is this repentance that is necessary to enjoy God's gracious forgiveness? I think Solomon provides a pretty good definition in the text. At least he gives us the pieces to it. Repenting is turning your heart to God, recognizing His Lordship, and rejecting wickedness. Repentance is marked by confession. You see that there in verse 47? If they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, you hear that confession? We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. Repentance is, is certainly it's marked by a turning away from whatever the sin is and a turning towards God. And it is marked by confession to God and to one another. The American church really struggles with this idea of confession. But we're happy to say, I'm a sinner and I've repented. But we really don't like to humble ourselves and actually confess specific sins. And certainly not to one another. Are you kidding me? People might, they might find out that I'm a sinner. Right? That's different than me just telling them. This is a shame. I think it's the result of, of buying into a lie sold to us by Satan and demons that we should be bold in our sin 
and shameful and shamed in our repentance. Friends, it should be flipped. We should be ashamed of our sin, but bold in our repentance. Love what John Chrysostom lived in the 4th century, called golden mouth by some. He said this, Be ashamed when you sin. Do not be ashamed when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness and salvation. Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. Church, be bold in repentance. Confess your sins to God and to one another. In so doing, you will strip away your own pride, cultivate humility, and contribute to a culture of grace here. This funny thing, as long as you endeavor to be really impressive to other people, you'll never confess it. You'll never become vulnerable with others. And here's the thing about relationships. You can only enjoy intimacy to the extent that you are vulnerable with someone else. To the extent that you are willing to make yourself known. Confess your sins. Be bold in repentance. True repentance leads to life without regret, says Paul. God makes himself known through his people. Through his presence with his people, word. Through his faithfulness to his people, he keeps his promises. And through his forgiveness of his people, he shows his commitment in the cross to both judge sin and save sinners. God also makes himself known through the holiness of his people. God's people love and walk with God Together, do notice the corporate nature of everything that is being said. This is not a me and Jesus or a me and God sort of piety. It's about we and Jesus, we as the people of God together. Solomon blesses the people in the second blessing, verse 57. Not one word of his Good promise has failed, which he spoke by his servant Moses. Verse 57, The Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And he maintain or support the cause of his servant, the cause of his people, Israel. And I love this, as each day requires. Praying for God to support the people in their mission as each day requires. The trouble of each day, God give us provision. The opportunities of each day, God, give us provision. Support us. To the end of verse 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. 
Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. And so we have this really neat sort of tension. If you look in verse, uh, Solomon says, God, pray that you are with us, that you won't forsake us, and that you might incline our hearts to you, basically, verse 58. And then you see verse 61, as he commands the people, therefore let your hearts be wholly true to the God, to God, keeping his commandments. So you see the tension, right? God, incline our hearts to you, and then he's turning around and he's giving the command, help us, you know, we need to incline our hearts to you. It's only by your grace and mercy, God, that we are going to be able to do this work of setting our hearts and our affections on you. Kind of what it is, I mean, when you ask the question, well, what is inclination of heart? One theologian said that love is inclination. That it's what you are inclined to do naturally. I found myself asking this question. What is the inclination of my heart? Is it for God? Or is it ultimately for myself? For other things? This is a good prayer for us to pray. God, incline our hearts to you. Help us to keep our hearts set on you. That we might walk in your ways. Verse 59, Solomon brings us to the goal of all this. Maintain the cause of your people. Why? Why should God support his people? The answer is to support his mission. Verse 60. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. The mission of the church has always been, the plan of God has always been to bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation together to worship himself. The Great Commission is not all that new. It exists throughout the Old Testament. All we have to do is read. It's not as if God was only concerned with Israel and didn't care about any Gentiles in the world, and then when Jesus showed up, he went to plan B. I guess we'll care about the Gentiles. No, God has always cared about his people. And his people has always been an international people. Israel was never only ethnically Jewish from the very beginning. When they're coming out of Exodus, they come up with a mixed multitude. There are Egyptians and others that leave with them to go to Sinai. We see throughout the pages of the Old Covenant, Gentiles being grafted in to the people of God. Think about the book of Ruth. He says to Naomi famously, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Ruth, a Gentile from Moab, disgusting Moab. It's like Blacksburg if you're a UVA fan. Ruth becomes a great grandmother of the Messiah. We, we have it throughout Kings here. The queen of Sheba is going to come to Solomon. We, we saw at the end of chapter 7, 
think it was seven, maybe four. I'm going to get there in a second, right? Verse 34 of chapter 4, And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Also see the widow of Zarephath later on. And Naaman, remember Naaman wants to be cured of leprosy. And because of the evangelism of a slave girl, he comes, he's healed, and he says this line in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15. I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. The pattern continues in the New Testament as we witness the conversion of the centurion, of Cornelius, and of others. We see the Syrophoenician woman coming uh, before Jesus and asking for her daughter to be healed. And he says, what, should I give the children of bread to the dogs, sarcastically, to teach a lesson? And she responds with like the greatest one-liner in history. She says, even dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And Jesus is like, your daughter is made well. This is faith. And the, whole, the point of that story is for him to kind of lash out against the potential racial animosity harbored by his own disciples. He's correcting them. Helping them to recognize that indeed, this gospel is for all nations. He is a king, not of this only one ethnic people. He's the king of all peoples. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's always been plan A. God has always desired disciples from every kind of people across the whole globe because he is worthy of the worship of all kinds of people across the whole globe. He's the God of all peoples. This truth is underscored for us once more in the fifth petition of Solomon in verse 41. Listen to what he says. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country in your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house here in heaven in your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, that is, worship you. God's people is an international people. And He desires, has always desired, to gather all the nations to Himself, that He might be praised and worshipped. That mission has been the mission from day one, and it's the mission of the church now. We are to be a royal priesthood. To all nations. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that, this is going to sound familiar, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are to take the good news of the gospel to the nations and let them know you don't have mercy now. There's judgment coming, but you can be included in the people of God. You can be called out of the darkness and into the marvelous light, out of death and into life, just like us. 
if you will repent and believe. Friends, do you long for, pray for, love the lost? Pray for the conversion of people in our county, in our country, and in the world. God's people, God makes himself known to his people as they love and walk with him together in obedience to his word. Lastly, we see that God makes himself known through the worship of his people. And I've said I love this a lot this morning, but this is my favorite section of this chapter. And it might, not, it might strike you at first, but listen, and then we're going to work through it quickly. Verse 62. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. This is kind of funny because the first time they were sacrificing and celebrating, sacrifices couldn't be numbered. I wonder if it was couldn't be or nobody kept track. I'm not sure. Because here, they keep track. Listen, Solomon offered as peace or fellowship offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the fellowship offerings because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the fellowship offering. So Solomon held the feast at that time and all Israel with him. A great assembly from Levohamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days. And on the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. This is an incredible event. Imagine being there, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. The altar isn't big enough to accommodate all of the sacrifices. And so Solomon turns the whole courtyard into an altar. There would have been blood everywhere. Like a sea of blood. The place would have been filled with the stench of death. It would have been clear to all that sin is deadly serious. That none come before a holy God without the payment of blood. We look to Christ and celebrate because we, we do come into God's presence through His blood. It would have been a serious ceremony but it also would have been incredibly joyful. You see, because when Solomon turns the whole courtyard into an altar, he's also turning the whole courtyard into a grill. The place is filled with blood, 
And it's also a barbecue. See, these, remember when we went through Leviticus, you all groaned, but now it's coming back. It's all coming back to me now, right? Uh, the fellowship offering in particular, in verse 63, was a special sort of offering. Remember, they all, all emphasize atonement underneath it all, but they all also accent different things. And the emphasis of the fellowship offering, sometimes called the peace offering, was that peace with God had been accomplished and that God and his people were in relationship with one another. And so this was the only offering, the fellowship offering, the only offering that the worshiper actually got to eat some of. Representative of a meal celebrating relationship with God. You don't eat with people you don't like. This might not seem a huge deal to us, but it would have been to an Israelite. We feast all the time. We always eat to fullness. And so it's hard for us to get our heads around what, how joyous it would be to share in such a feast. I mean, these people, their diet was mostly been made up of vegetables. I mean, can you imagine how awful that would be? Mostly vegetables, and here they're going, they get to have meat. A special occasion. They're, they're going to share a meal with God and their family as they rejoice before the king. And so, yes, there is blood and the smell of death. This is a serious thing to come before the Lord. There is also the sound and smell of meat sizzling on the grill. As the people rejoice before the Lord seven days, they are in fellowship with Him. Friends, let us look on this joyous celebration and learn. We are to approach God with seriousness, and with joyfulness. We should be a people marked by serious joy. We should have to our worship both a gravity and a gladness. They go together. We approach God and we honor Him as He deserves to be honored. He is of infinite value. And we also rejoice before Him because He is our good and mighty King. So friends, we go from here this morning. Let us go as a people who have been in the presence of God. Go to our homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord has shown to us, His servants, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is Himself our fellowship offering. His blood atones for sin and allows us to dine with God Almighty. Let's come with serious joy to the table this morning as we enjoy a meal with Jesus.